When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. We're in the middle of a glorious sporting week, still reeling somewhat from what was an epic sporting weekend. If you're in any doubt as to how epic it was, I can see a sliver of doubt in your eyes there again. Just have a think about how many celebrities and politicians climbed aboard the sports mm. banner. This was incredible. This was just Charlie Hoy in 87 the Tour de France had nothing on this. Murphy. Daniel Craig in the Lions dressing room. And as the Sky Sports presenter said at the time, it sums up what the Lions yes. means. It's a brand that goes everywhere. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how you would think if you were a Lions player from the you know 125 year history of that particular team to see you know the man who plays James Bond James Bond effectively summing up what you've you know decided to commit your career to. Such is the power of the Lions brand that it manages to seduce even a rugby loving English actor. <laughs> he do, and he does know his rugby according to Brian O'Driscoll uh, in one of his columns this week. French President Francois Hollande was uh, greeted Dan Martin on his stage victory and just about everybody was at the Wimbledon final. Bradley mm. Cooper some Hollywood royalty there. Wayne Gerard Rooney. Butler. Mm. Uh, the Scottish First Victoria Minister Bedford. Alex Salmond unfurled the Scottish flag just to remind everybody what nationality Andy Murray truly is. Yeah. Slightly awkward moment. And David Beckham called him up the next day to tell him, enjoy it. So, uh, good moment for Andy Murray there. Too early in the GA summer, Murph, for celebrities or politicians? Well, we're getting to sort of goal time now. I mean, I'd be pretty shocked if the Ulster final happens next Sunday week and, you know, Big Tom isn't in Clonus. I'd be very surprised. I'm really, really surprised, actually. Delighted to have Dan Martin on the show today. Yeah, you know you've interviewed him in the past, Ken, at the Olympics. You found him to be cool. Yeah, I met him at the Olympics. Um, I think it was after the road race. He didn't... I don't think the road road race went that well for the Irish, for the Irish guys. Uh, Didn't couple, take a whole lot out of them either, as I recall. But look, you know, he just come off the tour. It's a trading experience. Although he seems to be in in very good form at the moment. I mean, so far he's navigated all the tests, and uh, and and he's in great shape. I mean, it's as we know the most difficult sporting event in the world, and sometimes there are unexpected sort of difficulties. Go on. Um, well, I was saddened down by the story of Thibaut Pino who is the French, one of the really promising young French cyclists who's uh, rated an outstanding uh, climber, races for the FTJ team. It turns out, however, that the other part of climbing is descending. Uh, 
and he's almost as important. Some would say. It turns out he's absolutely terrified of descending. And this is this is not this is actually quite serious. I mean, you got to feel sorry for this guy. You know, he says some people are afraid of spiders or snakes. I'm afraid of speed. It's a phobia, says Tour de France cyclist uh, Thibaut Pinot. Uh, essentially, he, he rolled in 25 minutes behind everyone. So he, like, bails up the mountain 10 minutes quicker than everyone else and then hops off the bike and walks down. Okay. Is that basically what happens here? That's that's what happens. I mean, I suppose it is terrifying. Some riders are better than others. What was the Italian guy they called the Falcon because he was a complete death-defying lunatic who, uh, you know, just pedaled as fast as he could downhill and didn't, you know, had absolutely no regard for life or limb and... Not everybody has that gift. We'll be reflecting on the success of the Dublin Hurlers, which had Anthony Daly uh, well-deservedly celebrating mm. after the game. Murphy was quite emotional. Yeah, well, I mean, if, you, if you've if you followed Anthony Daly's career, he, he's an emotional guy. You know, he wears his heart in his sleeve. As a player, he was close to tears after most of Clare's big victories. And uh, he, di- he was asked about how emotional he got uh, in his post-match interview on RTE. And he said, uh, not to mind that, uh, I get emotional listening to some traditional music. So, and, and you would actually kind of believe it, you know, and he was on, you know, a team that managed by Gerlach Nan that also included Davy Fitzgerald, pe- hurling people on who get kind of involved in the whole scenario. And we, we remember his speech in 95 in Thurless, uh, talking about the famine being over and all the rest. And when they won the All-Ireland in 95, another rather emotional speech. And then there was... The speech in 97 when he, he started talking about how Clare weren't no longer the whipping boys of Munster and his voice audibly breaking throughout that. So, I mean, traditional music was mentioned in one of those speeches as well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, in uh, 95, they say, yeah, the, we love our traditional music, but we also we also love our hurling. We've actually got a clip from Dublin Celebrations <coughs> on Sunday. Raise the sun Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, at least rare old time. Dublin Mead coming up next weekend. We're going to be talking to Anthony Moyles, who is a man who's been in the middle of that rivalry, and we'll be chatting more uh, about Andy Murray. But it is time now to get on to Warren Gatland and Lions and Brian O'Driscoll talk with Shane Horgan and Trevor Hogan, who has arrived in studio. I must say, Trevor, you must have missed the memo because you've arrived without your written apology to Warren Gatland. What's going on? <laughs> I know, yeah, I just totally. Uh... Skipped, skipped a memory there for the start. Well, I just, yeah, I think an apology <laughs> is stretching a little bit too much. In fact, people have actually called for that. Yeah, so some journalists, oh, yeah, no, ironically, are looking for apologies. An apology seems to me a bit anti-journalistic in this instance because, in fairness, a lot of the criticism, you know, it did. It, it's, it's, it was definitely warranted. It was maybe some of the vitriolic stuff that Warren himself was pointing out that he didn't. Uh, he didn't want once, and it was that was mainly coming from anonymous online. That's what he stuff, says. Yeah, you know? he says oh, I don't have a problem with what ex-players and pundits were saying, but some online stuff directed at me was particularly vitriolic. Uh, I guess that's you know, is that a bit of a, a bit of a catch-all to say there's online there are going to be people on any forum who are going to say things you don't like. Is a, a, a man as big as him, a coach as big as him, just presumably has to take that on board and ignore it. Yeah, you would have thought so. It was maybe surprising and how he came out with it. And he, the fact that he didn't even enjoy the the game was really revealing, I thought. Uh, so it, it definitely must have got to him, all right. And it was obviously something that really impacted on his own even mindset leading up to the game and obviously during the game. So that was that was quite revealing that he would say that. And he should... You, you would have thought that the likes of Twitter and Facebook or wherever the anonymous stuff was coming from that he would have been 
you know, expecting that kind of stuff and be able for it. Maybe it was a, the, the the comments possibly that would have hurt him were the stuff about the the Welsh picking the ten Welsh and that kind of stuff. I I, I myself wasn't wasn't sure about that kind of thing, and I don't think that would be valid in, in terms of a lot of the previous Lions tours would have had cert, at certain periods predominantly Welsh or English at one one point or another and I don't think it was going against any tradition or values of the Lions which some in fairness commentators might have been pointing out and I don't think maybe that in hindsight was the wisest comments now if that's what Gatland was talking about I don't know it's, it's just unclear but you know, I don't think it's realistic or it's even, you know, it's valid to be expecting people to come out and make apologies. You want people to give their honest opinions. And I still think the whole O'Driscoll thing, it doesn't stand up to logic, apart from the only point I can see in hindsight now is looking at using Davies for his left-footed kick, which basically had very little impact on the game except for one or two points. Shane, Warren Gatland is one of the most successful coaches in the world, really, and he's achieved one of his biggest achievements in winning a Lions series and yet he hasn't taken a lot of pleasure because of the vitriolic abuse that he says he suffered. Should we feel a bit of sympathy for Gatland? Um, I, I would feel uh, sympathy only with regard to some comments online can be particularly um, hurtful and I think that it's okay to say that everything can wash off your, your, your back but that necessarily isn't the case. You know, probably any experience of, of um, social media in a position like that is, is is best off steering, probably steering clear of it entirely. But, you know, if you stumble across something particularly hurtful, I, I think that that uh, that may affect you. Now, um, I can't, I totally disagree with anything I was said within, certainly in any mainstream media that I read. Um, I, I disagree with some of the things that people said, and I'm sure he does as well, but I don't think there was any, any really harsh comments or personal comments about him. There was just a view that, Potentially, he wasn't taking the side down the best route to uh, success. Um, now, he's achieved success. Um, he's won a series. Ultimately, that's uh, the main thing about the Lions. It's not about building for four years. It's not about anything else. It's about delivering a series win. Um, and he did that. Uh, now, I don't think he went about it in the in the easiest manner. I don't. I think he made it more difficult than uh, he should have. But, but ultimately, by dropping O'Driscoll, you mean? Oh, no, I not. I think O'Driscoll certainly one factor, but I think right the way through the series, I don't think he picked uh, the correct team. And I think that the type of style of rugby that he played uh, was very, very basic and not sophisticated and, and didn't make best use of the, the talent that he has. And and I think we, we saw a little bit uh, about, we saw a little bit of how, massive the talent in that line in squad was in the last test although the game plan was again not as sophisticated as it could have been especially looking across that back line um, and the players that and the opportunities that he had to to use those players in, in a way that could cut up a really really average Australian team. Did he get his team selection and tactics right for the final test though Trevor given the <laughs> landslide victory they won by yeah, I'd, I'd say you'd have to argue at, at least in the back row combination, which was one of the most contentious uh, throughout the tour, that he possibly finally got that right. And it's, it's a tough, tough call. Maybe Jamie, but Falatau had an outstanding game. And Jonathan Davies, though, he, he was d- playing outside centre. Jamie Roberts inside him. They played well together and they won comfortably. Does that not vindicate him? Is the word that a lot of people are using? Um, no, not really, because I, I don't know. Shane would know more about this than I would. But I just had a look again there at Jonathan Davies and Jamie Roberts. Uh, performance the weekend and I thought uh, there was one, one particular telling moment where Jonathan Davies he, he 
misread a switch line with, with Lee Halfpenny and he ran into him and it gave away a penalty and that kind of led up to James O'Connor try going into half time and I just thought in attack Jonathan Davies didn't really offer anything apart from the, that little great little kick to the corner off his left foot at one stage and I think that reflects that the, the conservative style of approach that Shane is talking about in, in this Warren ball I know I hate that term but his, his style of play relies heavily on kicking for field position and once you're in a strong position then he'll rely on a strong explosive runners pick and goes the tempo coming off the nine which is usually Phillips and then they'll go for quick ball when they see, uh, see the opportunity um, but it's not really making taking advantage of what the skill level they have in that back line and Jonathan Davies probably suited that um, but I don't think that the performance the weekend would vindicate that selection as such on itself uh, the selection of Jonathan Davies ahead of Brian Driscoll because Brian Driscoll would have been able to do that anyway but uh, you don't want to seem like you're harping on about that issue but the victory does vindicate you know, overall the selection, but if you t- isolate that, I don't think it necessarily does. Yeah, it is a big issue. I think it is worth harping on about to a certain extent because it's something that will be talked about. It's partly what the tour will be remembered for. Now, it would probably be remembered for that a lot more had they actually lost the match, but they won, Shane, and they played, it's maybe not the most sophisticated game plan, but they did cut loose in the second half and they managed to do so without Brian O'Driscoll in the team. So almost by definition, does that make Warren Gatland correct in his team selection? Um. Again, I think you have to isolate um, the O'Driscoll decision from from the other decisions. I think Sean O'Brien particularly had a, a huge game. I think his selection uh, was vindicated. Uh, Toby Fatale as well. I think his selection was vindicated. Played really well. Carried the ball well. Um, I think he Corbisero, um thankfully was able to get through the entire game and had a huge influence in the game. And probably looking back, uh, playing Hibbert at two as well and really going for a strong scrum was vindicated as well. So I think he got the selection of the forwards right. I think he got the mindset of the forwards right as well. And, you you, you know, that's an element to Gatlin that is unimpeachable, really. He can get players, he can get the best set of players and get players playing very well in the system that he wants them to play. And he really got them going, got the scrum exceptionally strong, exceptionally physical. He got the carrying better than at any time on the tour. You know, if you look at those forwards and every one of them, you know, was almost played to, to played their best game on tour. Um, as I said, Sean O'Brien gave a uh, gave a huge work rate, along with being able to carry the the, the ball. And uh, Alan Jones, I thought, was just outstanding. He just really he stood up as he does so often and has done so often for Wales. He was he was a brilliant captain in the in the way he played. And um, so I think from that point of view, you know, the, I may disagree with the way Gatlin goes about playing the game, and that may be just a, phil- a philosophical difference. Um, in styles, I think it might be a hemisphere difference as well, and it might be something along the way that I like the game to be played, or I think getting the best out of players, uh, or you know, as an overall team. But I tell you, you can't doubt the fact that he gets players to really commit themselves physically, and the Lions did that perfectly at the weekend, especially in the pack. And when your pack is on top, it makes things very, very easy for the back line. But uh, you know the reverse is true. If if your pack are in trouble, as they had been at various stages during the previous two weeks, it's almost impossible as a back to uh, have a big influence on the game. Yeah, it was interesting, Shane, that when Warren Gatland talked after the game, I think these these quotes were from Sunday actually, and uh, when he had a bit of time to reflect and everything, he pointed back to an 
incident or a game that he was in charge of while he was coach of Ireland against Scotland in 2001, which we famously lost quite heavily. He said, tactically, I changed the way we played, influenced by some selections that day. I promised myself I'd never do that again, that I'd never back down from what I felt would be the right decision. On 50-50 calls, sometimes you can be swayed by other coaches. But when you really believe deep down it's the right decision, you've got to back yourself 100%. You were playing that day. Do you know, do you have an idea what he might be talking about? I might be one of those 50-50 decisions playing in the centre and I, I didn't have a particularly good game either. Um, I, I, I don't know, he sounds as if he's, he's um, you know, clearing house a little bit there, you know, and maybe he's uh, he's getting a couple of digs into, to, you know, I, I would say maybe getting a dig at Woody and possibly at uh, Eddie O'Sullivan and there's a bit of history there. Um, you know, I don't think the, the talent of what he's saying, I don't think there's any issue with that. You know, I think if he truly believes that he was swayed by other coaches and he learned that he shouldn't be swayed and he should go with his own instinct, well, I think that's probably a good lesson for him and and I would say that it's probably served him well. It wouldn't be how I would necessarily feel the best way to coach a side. I think that it's it's uh, very much, you know, I think it's a collective. It, ultimately, yeah, you have to stand on, um, on your own um, feeling as a, as a head coach, but I certainly think, especially as a as a, a very forward orientated coach, which which Warren is, and there's no doubt about that. He's not a man with a sophisticated uh, back play or a sophisticated plan for black play, or uh, I think a, a huge insight into back play. Um, I think in those situations, I think it, it you know it probably is important to um, to listen to the other coaches around you and and. That quote probably flies a little bit in the face of what he was even saying earlier on in the week where he was saying that the decision to drop Brian was very much a collective decision. And he said that everyone agreed with that decision and they all came to it. So, you know, it's a little bit of hindsight there. Now that the decision appears to have worked out well for him, they've won. He's taken it on his shoulders and I don't think he can have it every way. Um, that that uh, game in particular, we did maybe try to play a little bit of a style. It was a new style, but that was a huge movement away from an old style of rugby. There was a lot of new players um, and young players in that, 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 that played in that game. And a lot of players that went on to have a lot of success with Ireland playing in a more expansive way than we had done under under uh, Warren um, laterally with, um, with Eddie O'Sullivan. So... You know, I can see one of the points he's making, but also I think that if we had continued on that Irish team playing in the manner that we had done for the, or Irish teams had done for the five or ten years before that, I don't think that there would be any way to success that has existed over the last ten years for Ireland. It is pretty interesting, though, that he's he's picked out that game 12 years on, and there's obviously something in that that's, that's stuck in his mind and it seems that whatever it was with the change of game plan, he's convinced himself now that he is someone he, he, he won't compromise when it comes to his own ideas of what, the, what his game plan should be and whether it's if, the sele- if it comes down to a selection issue he will pick the players suited to his game plan in his yeah. head. Interesting that Shane makes a point though that he has sort of changed his tune there. It was supposed to be yeah. originally it was a unified team selection now there seems to be a suggestion that at least one of the coaches I'm going to throw it out there and say mm. that maybe the defence coach Andy Farrell would have been looking at this and going hang on a second I wouldn't mind having Brian O'Briscoll in my team Possibly but you just don't know what to believe in the week leading up to the game what they're saying is always tempered somewhat you know and if you, if you just take if you take that quote on its own and you see 
geez, Gatlin can be fairly stubborn, fairly ruthless when it comes to that. If it's a 50-50 call, he's saying, grand, he listens to the other coaches. But when he is convinced in his head that someone is needed for his game plan, he's going to go with that because he's, he's learned bitterly from, from that 2001 experience. Is a lesson here? You know, yes, Shane, yeah. It's hard, it's hard as well to, to, to necessarily, um, you know, go against that because he's had huge success, you know, and... You know, whatever about the you know the style of play and whatever about maybe some of the shortcomings of, of, of his game plan, he has had huge success. And it's you know you can always point to the medals. And and if you look at over the last ten years, now he has he's certainly been lucky in the teams he's been involved in. There's no doubt about that. He's been involved with teams that are just coming onto their peak and have a hugely talented um, player suited. To playing that sort of game plan. If you look at Was and you look um, later at um, at um, the Welsh team and even indeed this Lions team, they are very suited to to you know his selections each of those times and the core players that were involved. Big, strong men carry the ball very uh, very well, very aggressively, and they really grind down their teams. They don't open up the teams with sophisticated uh, back play or, um, or you know, I suppose a, a game plan that, that outthinks the opposition. And, you know, if that's because he has those players and he fe- feels that's the best way to use them, then you sort of have to say, you know, well done and, and you've been very successful. Now, I just think if, 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 if uh, the Lions were going up against either South Africa or New Zealand, I just don't think that would have worked against them. And, you know, if he's still around in four years, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how other coaches in the Six Nations adapt to to uh, the way well the the Welsh play. Um, you've still got a lot of players at the top of their game there, but it's pretty clear what they do. It's just a case of can you stop it? You know, a point that's been raised since the since the dropping is how well Brian O'Driscoll handled things. I suppose you would expect that of uh, somebody who's been around that long. But he's making the point himself in his column in the. Daily Telegraph that he <laughs> he hasn't been dropped before um, and he you know, made the point he was substituted I think in an under 21 game against Wales many many years ago but he hasn't been dropped as a professional rugby player so it's all well and good him preaching to others that they have to react in the right way this is the first time that he found himself in that situation and all players get dropped at some point when you're as good as Brian O'Driscoll maybe it only ha- happens very rarely but he seems to have reacted to it quite well. He has, and, and the way he spoke there about it, it's, it's one thing, you know, saying it, but what you have to act it when it when it happens to you, and he clearly did that this week. And I think the other, the fact that it's happened now, possibly it will make him an even more round, better rounded person and a rounded rounded player to play with, because he he can relate to. Pe- other players' experiences now when they are, you know, when he, he mentioned in that column how he he, know, he has seen people going around like with a dark cloud over them and, you know, he always said, I'm not going to be that person and now he's actually gone through it and lived it. It means he, his stature in, in that in that regard is is much more credible now, you know. Um, so it, in a way, it's, it's ironic, but it would make him possibly a better person, a better player in the long run and a better captain as well if, if that's what Joe's going to have to have a decision to make, whether it's going to be him or Paul next year but I think he's he's definitely someone in his reaction you can tell that he's actually used it he's going to turn it to his advantage in the long run It would have been hugely difficult for him Shane because Ron O'Gara made the point in his examiner column on Friday that look this happens to everybody but in this case Brian, Brian O'Driscoll was probably starting the week thinking he could be the captain of a Lions team and he goes from that to getting a tap on the shoulder from Rob Howley while he's getting himself a coffee to go in for a meeting where he's told he's dropped altogether. For other players they might see the writing on the wall as Ron did a 
little bit last season. This is a slightly different dynamic here where you go from potentially a career high to an absolute career low in the space of one tap on the shoulder. Yeah, it was. The, the, those two options probably existed. Um, but I think that Brian would have recognised that those two options existed as well. I don't think he would have um, had the hubris to believe that he he wasn't, the potential wasn't there for Warren to do that. I just have a feeling that he, he you know, he, he recognises the... Um, he recognised the the comings and goings and the potential uh, for that to have happened. And so I'd say it was potentially in the back of his mind. Mind you, I think that if you get to the morning before the team is picked um, and you know, the stature of a player that Brian O'Driscoll is, I think maybe you might have thought you might have dodged a bullet, you know. But uh, devastating for him, you know. And I think he has managed it brilliantly, as he has done with all his you know, media commitments and interactions with the over the last probably you know five or seven years, I think he's been almost flawless in his interactions with them. But it is a devastating, it's a crushing blow. I do think that Trevor is right. I, I did think about this uh, that this week that he, uh, you know, although it's very hard to pick any sort of uh, silver lining out of it, you know, it does have a huge effect on you when you get dropped and. You know, at this at this stage in his career, yeah, you're wondering how much, uh, how you know, how good can it be? But if you know, even if he's playing on for one more year, it's going to affect his interactions with other people and other players. And it is quite difficult to have the same empathy with a player if you haven't been through it, or even if you do have a huge amount of empathy, the player that has been dropped, and you might have to have a word with them as a captain or as a senior player. You know, is probably in the back of their mind. Well. You know, you've never been dropped. You don't know what I'm feeling. You've never experienced it. But he's in that position now that he he has felt it. Uh, everybody is aware he's felt it. And I, I think if whatever he chooses to go on in in his own life as well, I think it will serve him well. You can imagine that if he goes into coaching, it you know to to have a, had that feeling at the biggest point, at the biggest game, as he would feel at the biggest game in his life right now. I think that will leave it leave a scar, but it'll also you know, it'll it'll temper him. It'll it'll make him stronger for anything else he has to or he wants to achieve in his life. Uh, well, we've we have heard a lot in recent days before we finish up talking about the lines about these lads being friends for life. And I know Shane that you and Gordon Bullock have been sharing a flat since you came back from New Zealand in two thousand and five. <laughs> that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, you know. When was the I last think... time you chatted to Bully? Actually, yeah, Joe Bolster. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, I think he's coming in on the other line now, so I'm going to be quick. Um, it is, it is, you do, listen, my tour, my Lions tour, um, we didn't win anything. So I think that, you know, that changes things. If you are part of a winning Lions team, I think there's a different sort of bond there. If you're on a Lions team that wins, if you're on the first 15, it is different than if you're a part of a squad member. I know people say that, oh, it's, you know, all the Lions are in together and it's a complete squad thing. It's not, you don't feel the same ownership of any kind of victory if you're not, you know, playing or if you don't come on, you know, do you have some ownership, but you just certainly do not feel the same thing. It's, it, it is a little bit different or it certainly was for me. That's all I can say. Um, there also will be people that you met on tour that you will connect with and that you will have uh, friendships with some stronger than others, but you don't remain unbelievably friendly with all the players on the tour because you actually aren't unbelievably friendly with all the players while you're on tour. There's so many people um, and there's so much to do. And there's actually, you know, things are there for rugby as well. And it is different than years ago. And, and you know, I, I often I'm sort of jealous of, of some of the older players. You know, I often talk to Hugo McNeil and he ha- has some 
continuing friendships with with guys that he played against you know very early in his career with french guys and welsh guys and these friendships have gone on and i think because of professionalism because of the amount of time that you now spend in a group with your own players and the the fact that when you're playing against most of these players whether it be you know against wales in france scotland whoever it is that the it's it's your it's your career and your profession and your job and there's so much in it it's very hard then to have a very you know amicable relationship with those guys off the field now there's always exceptions to that but i think the days where you you know you have those unbreakable friendships they exist now probably stronger than ever within your province and in within your country and less so with uh, other nations lads cracking stuff thanks so much for all your help throughout the Lions tour to Shane Horgan and to Trevor Hogan. You can go out now and enjoy the sunshine. Thanks, lads. No bother. Sorry. I really just, I don't know how to react to all of that, Murph. If Shane Horgan and Gordon Bullock are not friends for life, then pretty much everything Sky has told me about the whole Lions concept has been wrong. They've misled yeah. me all I mean, along. I, I can't believe They're it They're not either. all friends for life. It's not the most important thing in the world. Yeah, um, they did kind of over-egg it, didn't they? I mean, they, they usually do their sports pretty brilliantly. But I just, I just kind of felt that the whole thing about the Lions was just, it was so blown up. I don't, know if, I don't necessarily know if it was any different from last time. I just I did find it difficult, the first couple of tests. I, I think it was Matty Clerken was writing about it and said that Sky maybe misjudged their audience somewhat. He, f- he thought that they felt that the supporter at home believes in the whole Lions concept as fervently as some of the past players, the Willie John McBrides and the Jim Telfers and these guys believe in it whereas really what it is is you want to see how the Irish guys are doing and once Brian O'Driscoll gets dropped suddenly it becomes a massive big downer when you go into the final test and maybe maybe it's the same way Sky approach everything but in this particular case it seemed like you, you didn't buy into it uh, certainly a lot of Irish viewers didn't buy into it as much because it's so empty and false I mean the incessant repetition of words like passion and pride uh, you, you're, you're sort of pushing emotional buttons that actually just get worn out. People sort of forget the link between these words which are used in slogans to advertise sporting events actually relate to powerful human emotions. Um, the, the link between them is broken because you only ever see these words used with these footage of sort of rugby players striding towards the camera and stopping as sort of volcanoes are going off <laughs> in the background. It's totally ridiculous. I mean, I wonder how it's going to date. You know, when you look back at, at stuff from 25, 30 years ago, the coverage is really understated. You know, it's just often just a guy sitting in the studio, you know, David Coleman or whatever, and, and he just... Good sort of, evening. Good now evening. for some sports. Yeah, and we're going, we introduced it, and that's, and that's basically it. Whereas now it's just this apocalyptic madness, you know. Sort I of, find actually with rugby, though, that the even like Orty do it as well. It's like this hugely overblown, bombastic music. Well, that wasn't that... The, they had that one where they, they were in this sort of Middle no, Earth uh, environment and they were fighting against those... Ents, you know, the big tree yeah, yeah, things, yeah, they yeah. were like, a, they, they got into a scrum. You know, and I, I, get, I don't know how it's going to go, because obviously you, gotta, you have to keep changing in television. You can't just stay the same. So what the trend is going to be, will it be sort of more spare and minimalist? Yeah, in just hurting. maybe Brian O'Driscoll or whoever his equivalent is 20, you know, 20 years time, just in a Terry Towling robe, you know, sitting yeah, relaxing, in a hotel. You know, this, is, this is the reality. Yeah. Of, of life back at base. No, I'm not going to go out and hang around with the guys. I just want to, you know, stay in my hotel room, maybe get an early night. Time now for some of these. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes and the puccine. Huh? And the puccine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bone and bread, yeah, yeah. 
It's uh, P. Bezo time on. Uh, Ross O'Connor writes, Greetings from Salangor, Malaysia, where at least one person is loving your work. Nobody has the faintest idea who you are here. Thanks for nothing, Ross. Truth be told, most people I've met over here so far only have a vague concept of Ireland. So please do a shout out so that I can feel a sense of connection with Ireland and more specifically with Pierce Brosnan. Cheers, Ross O'Connor. Uh, we have an email from New Zealand, Kevin O'Malley. Uh, writes, loving listening to the podcast all, all the way over in the land of the long white cloud. Can't say my Kiwi flatmates would be too enthusiastic about me playing at full volume in the kitchen later, but it's my birthday, so ah, I can do what I want. Birthday. So a very happy birthday to you, Kevin. Uh, hi, working in Hollyhead in Anglesey, northwest Wales. I'm originally from Clontarf, says Jermaine O'Leary. Clontarf is definitely better than Hollyhead. Yeah. Uh, miss home, but you guys keep that homesickness at bay every Tuesday. Uh, and I can only imagine the loneliness that Jermaine is feeling. So lonely over there, 25 miles or so from home. Uh, but we wish you all How the very best. How would he ever get from Hollyhead to I, Dublin? I can't Hollyhead, work it out. I don't know that there's any transfer, uh, nope. transport infrastructure there at all, but we'll, we'll try our best. Uh, hi, folks. Can you give a shout-out to me, Mark, in Melbourne? Cheers, Mark. <laughs> so I think I gave out about fellas giving you their life story, but you know, this might have been a little too brief. Uh, the most worrying correspondence of the week comes from Colin McGough, who writes... Hi lads, give me an old shout out there. I'm living in Mumbai, India, and listen every Tuesday. My driver, yes, I have a driver, which is standard over here, felt the void when you guys read off the air, but uh, but he's glad you're back. Thanks. Uh, is that actually standard fare, to have a driver in Mumbai? I don't know. I suppose it depends who you're working for, but it is definitely very difficult to drive in India, or at least mm. it would require a certain either blithe confidence in your own ability or else uh, long familiarity with the with the ways they blow their horns all the time yeah i thought that this was really kind of annoying it's like what are you blowing your horns for it's completely useless but it's actually like a kind of echolocation it's oh, like right, okay. it's used to for right, drivers to know where they're roll it on there's more people there more uh, people. Ronan Ferguson says how are you from Manila Shane O'Rourke is coming home from Nova Scotia after boring his children to tears with river dance and other old crack from the mother country Stephen Madden is in the top 17 hurlers in Zurich Switzerland mm-hmm. uh, Barry McNicholas is listening in every week in uh, Edinburgh and Jacob McKernan says Anne Young Hasio from Iksan South Korea and I'm pretty certain that that, that, that was a swear word because he uh, gave me a Korean phrase to say uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was just hello, which yeah. is kind of boring. Uh, Brian James Byrne finally wins this week's award for the most out there location as he contacts us from Hiroshima, Japan. Uh, any, ch- any chance of a pee bezel for a faithful man living in Hiroshima, Japan? I've endured the pain of local Midlands radio commentary for each and every defeat awfully have been subject to this championship year. Hard times to be a biffo, but that would be alleviated with a much vaunted pee bezel. Insincerely, Brian James Byrne. Uh, it must have been tough spending so much time in a barren, featureless landscape renowned for its toxic atmosphere and place in world infamy. But I'm glad you've now left, Offaly. Uh, okay, forget about it. That's me. We're moving on. Nikki English is ready to talk about uh, Dublin hurling, really, Nikki, and their success. It wasn't a great weekend from your own county's point of view, but you're more than welcome aboard the Dublin bandwagon at this stage. You've lived in the city for quite a long time. You must have been pretty pleased with the Lancer title for Dublin. Ah, uh, yeah, it's great, you know, and suppose we're all involved with underage clubs here in Dublin and you know have kids playing in, in Harlem and it's just like for you know that bit of success will be uh, it's really welcome and you know it's, I suppose it's coming it's coming a few years really it's uh, you know two years ago Dublin were, were a semi-final team and you know I suppose last year just they slipped back a bit but you know once they once they got a bit of confidence and a belief back in themselves and I actually think the um, 
first game, the draw against Wexford was probably was was really vital, I think, because probably even better so for him than winning it. Because if they had if they had won that night, just uh, it might have masked some of the problems. But you know, the fact that they had to go back, you know, get sit down among themselves as uh, as we read now, and uh, you know, decide where they were and what they were doing, and uh, made change the team around a bit, like Conal Keeney was then wing back that night, and uh, you know, they went in then. Beat Wexford, got the belief back in, and got to draw. You know, got in, still got in under the radar against Kilkenny a bit, and then when they got to draw, and uh, the great win the second day, then you know, they were back on the track. Still hard, I suppose, to expect them to to run riot against Galway, but I, I thought they'd have a very. They, I, I did think they'd have a good chance. Looking back a little bit further than the last couple of years, say when you were playing and when you were living in Dublin, did you think they had a chance then to ever be successful at the game? Would it even have crossed your mind that Dublin could be a successful hurling county? What was the state of hurling at that stage in Dublin? Yeah, well, see, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been. I mean, I wouldn't have been that tuned into it other than to see their their inter county team really at, at that stage. But you know, I suppose. I mean. I'm I'm of the view that anyone can play hurling anywhere. It's really just, you know, the, the structures and and the um, you know the the supports are there for for the game. Really, it shouldn't be. You should you just shouldn't have to be from Kilkenny or from you know from Cork to to be able to play hurling. It doesn't matter. Really. It's just it's just a sport really, and and athletes can can play any kind of sport if they if they get the support and get the uh, get the get the, the necessary coaching. And, and at that stage. Like it's ten or fifteen. No, it must be ten or fifteen years ago since you know uh, Michael O'Grady and and uh, his uh, team on the Dublin Development Squad got Dublin Development Squads got the schools going together and uh, you know at that stage Dublin colleges used to play as one team to be to be competitive in the Leinster uh, Leinster colleges competition and now I think they have Dublin has three co- colleges teams playing in the you know so it, it, it I mean that that. That intervention, if you like, at that stage, ten or twelve years ago, really, is, is, has been paying dividends. And uh, you, you and you, I, I live in on the south side, and you only need to just see the amount of kids that are travelling around Booterstown and Black Rock with hurlies now. Just to, you know, it's it's totally different. When I was uh, playing myself back in the, you know, the eighties, I came to Dublin Force in the early nineties. You wouldn't see anybody going around that <laughs> that area with hurlies, and and you see all the kids going to all the national schools now, and they all have hurlies going around there, and it's. Um, it's it's just a um, there's the game is improving all the time and it's just <clears throat> I suppose the the next um, the next uh, development for uh, GAN hurling and, and particularly in Dublin would be actually to get get an outlet for all these people who are playing it to actually continue to play because you know the numbers are huge and and the amount of clubs hasn't grown that much and out as in more clubs yeah they'll, they'll, I actually believe they will need more clubs yeah because if you if you take the south side area, you know, you have huge numbers of underage kids playing, but ultimately there's not enough clubs really to cater for them to be to be on club teams. You know, you can you know, you just like Kilmacode or Ballyboden can they can be ultimately very uh, competitive in Fail Nagale you saw on, on Sunday. Like Ballyboden still went down and won Fail Nagale, uh, St Bridget's won it last year, but it's just you know, they they have a huge pick, you know, and, and it's it's not about the fourteen fellas that win the fail in the gale or the fifteen fellas that win the fail in the gale, but it's the other, you know, it's to make sure that the other fifty that were on, that were there at under ten or under eleven or under twelve, that there's an outlet for them, and as they de- as they develop physically at different paces, that they're actually they're, they're not lost to the sport, you know. I think that's that would be a concern of mine. It's interesting you say, Nicky, that you feel. 
that anybody can play hurling. If you're coached the right way from a young age, there's no reason why you shouldn't. I get the sense sometimes from some hurling people that there's a certain snobbishness there. And maybe people from Tip and from Kilkenny and from Cork, some people possibly do feel that, well, there's a skill level here, there's a tradition here that allows us to be good at this game. You think that's essentially nonsense once the right resources and structures are in place? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. I, obviously, tradition, ultimately, when you come down to <clears throat> when you come down to, to playing, tradition tradition helps because there are teams that are expected to... But if you, if you see the right... Um, you know, I absolutely believe... I mean, in, in Carlo and Reason, they wouldn't have a huge number, but they, of, uh, like their their numbers same wouldn't be great, but they have, you know, improved at underage. Leash were, were you know, Leash had fallen off the cliff, <clears throat> and in the last number of years, you know, they've put... You know, they put resources, structure, you know, they've decided to do something about it. And uh, you see that, you know, they got to the Lens of Fine, okay, they were beaten, but they, they got to the Lens of Fine, you know. So it, it's, <clears throat> I, I, I firmly believe that any, any, you know, with, a, with, a, with enough of emphasis, but in, what happens is in a lot of, in, in, in some counties, you don't get the right emphasis they don't want because, you know, maybe they want to have Gaelic football as their number one. So you, you have a bit of that as well. You were on the first Tipperary team to win a Munster final in 16 years back in 87 and Richie Stakelum, the Dublin selector, was Tipperary captain that day. Daly did something similar with Clare as well. Is there a mindset that you, ha- that you have to have to, to beat history in that way? You know, the pressure that's on you when you haven't won for, for so many years. And is, is that something that those two guys could have helped to transmit to the Dublin players? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think it would. But actually, I think it made it, it. It became a bit easier for them because, you know, they were playing. They were playing every week in a row, and you know, something similar happened to Richie in uh, in '87 because Tipperary drew with Clare in the semi final and subsequently drew with Cork before beating them in the final. So, you know, it. it I actually think it was a major help to <clears throat> to Dublin that they were playing. That they know, didn't have to think about the, the week, salmon. Yeah. They played five matches in a row. Yeah, funnily enough, there was a quote from Ryan O'Dwyer uh, over it was today, actually, in the Irish Times, where he says, looking back on last year, and this is in terms of kind of building up to this success, we know two years ago Dublin were very good, so maybe they were steeled for a certain amount of success and there was a bit of expectation there, but they had a bit of a disaster, to put it mildly, last year. And O'Dwyer says, looking back on last year, I wish somebody pulled me aside, hit me in the jaw or something, because from the first Walsh Cup game, I was talking about All-Ireland. There seems to be a sense that any team, once they get carried away with themselves, are not going to succeed. And that happened last year for Anthony Daly and the management team to pull that back around and get the team going again. Is that the biggest achievement here? Uh, That's a huge achievement, yeah. It is, yeah, and like, they, but they they did get. I suppose you know, last year people say, oh, well, maybe they're just not as good as they as we thought they were after their display in uh, in uh, in Port Leash against Kilkenny, and then it was all downhill after that because Clare just knocked them out. But you know, ultimately, you know, they have talent, and they had it two years ago. They had it, and they're nearly virtually back to the same team all that they had two years ago. You know, they had a few injuries last year as well, and. You know, and this year they 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 didn't have the injuries. Uh, they got a pretty consistent uh, team in in the five week run. You know, if you saw them against Tipperary in the league semi final, now you you actually wouldn't have any um, idea that they could they could win an Leinster title. You'd be absolutely writing them off because they were at, they were they were terrible against Tipperary in the league semi final. And you know, league from in my uh, view, the league form normally normally. Um, Normally comes through pretty uh, pretty well in the championship, and you could say the same. Like Galway's, Galway's league form, Galway's performance last Sunday against Dublin 
wasn't totally different to the league form they showed in the semi-final against Kilkenny. So it's unusual that Dublin, you know, improved so much. And and really, you know, in their first championship game, they didn't show that much improvement, really. That was a very poor game against Wexford. Uh, so they were really, you know, they were still they were still bobbing around the bottom at that stage, really. And, was, you know, whatever, whatever f- f- switch was flicked after that, that drawn match in Wexford Park and the, the fact that they were able to get over Wexford the next day, not playing very well, they, then they improved. And, you know, every week, I, I think if, if you're a hurler or you're, you're, a, you're a footballer, like, sure, it's fantastic to be able to play every week. You know, and people say, oh, you're going to get tired and it's four or five weeks in a row. But you don't. And then management and coaches, they don't have to work very hard either because I assume just a bit of recovery and, you know, a little bit of a, a, a hurling session and you're back again for the next Sunday. And, and, you know, whereas if you're not playing matches, and this will be a difficulty for them, you know, they'll have to sit back in five weeks and, and it, it'll feel for them actually as if they're out of the championship, you know, that they're not in the championship. All the championship starts going on all around you. And I, I think this is a difficulty. And then you're watching whoever you, is, is coming through, you're watching them and... Um, you know, that's you have five weeks to wait, you know, and it yeah. becomes more difficult for them. What about your own county, Nicky? I saw him in O'Shea after the match was quite defiant. He says that he's certain that Tip will be back. I don't know if you're as certain that they'll be back at the top table next year. Um, I'd be I'd be surprised they were back at the top. Look, they've plenty of good players, but I think ultimately surgery is needed, really. And um, <clears throat> like 2010 is is four years ago at this stage now like there's I will be four years ago by the time the next championship comes around for Tipperary like we Tipperary went into last Sunday's match or last Saturday's match with 12 ultimately 13 if Paul Curran was going to be playing uh, the subs that were brought on a lot of those guys were playing in, in, in 2010 as well do you know what I mean so we haven't brought on much new talent over the last number of years and even Kilkenny who've been winning the All-Ireland they have been introducing they've introduced five or six new fellas so you know that's 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 the issue for Tip and uh, I suppose it was a natural inclination if you were Eamon O'Shea going back you know and you won the All-Ireland with these players two years ago well the natural inclination is to, is to go back for those players and assume you know that, that anything any of the issues in the meantime weren't, weren't to do with the players you know what I mean but you're it's been proved now that there is the that, that you know the the players really that won the Ireland in twenty ten are not the players that that they were at that stage and that Tiberi need to move on and, and introduce newer, younger talent and you know, you saw what Jimmy Barry Murphy did in last year in Cork. Uh, you know, younger players have been coming through everywhere. Uh, the tip players, the best of them that won the All Ireland in, in twenty ten were on the under twenty one team coming through. They didn't much come through Outside of those four or five players that were that won the double that year, and uh, you know since then very little, if anyone, has come true. And um, that, that's it's, it's it's I would say it's a more long term project now for two. That's a job you've been linked with in the past. You've been linked with the Dublin job on a couple of occasions as well. Any when you see what's happening now, any regrets that it's something you didn't get involved with in Dublin? I know you, you like to to be involved in intercounty management. You you're. You know, you're, you, it's a huge commitment, and uh, I just don't have the time to to, to be involved to, to to do to do the job the way it should be done. And uh, anyway, I think Anthony Day will be there for he'd be there for the rest of his life now after that. <laughs> He's doing all right, Murph. Next weekend, huge one. 
Yeah, well, we've Clare and Wexford in the first of the uh, uh, Phase 2 qualifiers, and then there's also Kilkenny and Waterford and the Munster final. We might talk about the Munster final next week, Nicky, but just from the point of view of Kilkenny and uh, Tipperary, it was obviously a huge performance from Kilkenny, but we have seen them struggle in the last few years to put two great performances back-to-back. Do you think that Waterford have a bit of a chance here? Well, I, I think that um, Kilkenny would be vulnerable, on uh, certainly vulnerable on, last, on next Saturday night. You know, that was... Like their form hadn't been great coming into the Tipperary match. You could argue that their forward, their the form up front against Tipperary wasn't really great either. You know, they they have scored one goal in the four uh, championship matches from Walter Walsh against uh, Dublin the first. They never looked like scoring a goal. Matt Root got a half chance last Saturday night, but they, other than that, they never looked like getting a goal. And that's uh, that's a difficulty. So anybody that plays against them have a chance if they're not going to be scoring goals really. Uh, and it was a hugely emotional occasion uh, last Saturday night. It was, you know, I've I've read Paul Murphy describing it like in All Ireland Fine. I've heard, I've read Henry Shefflin saying that it was a it was a game no they'll never forget. You know, but it's only a phase two qualifier. Do you know what I mean? So it it really has no significance. Uh, they just have to turn around, and it was significant that they be tipped down in their own ground, but they still have to turn around and. Uh, play Watford on, on Saturday night and it's not going to be an easy game because uh, you know Watford are lively Watford are used to playing in Torless whereas Kilkenny are not that used to playing in Torless in uh, in Championship um, having said that I, I, I think Watford are not the team they were last year you know there's there's no John Milan there for for, for, for one anyway um, they're, they're a bit more uh, inexperienced than they would have been last year and uh, so it's uh, while Kilkenny would be vulnerable I, I think you know, that they probably will come through. Nicky, brilliant stuff. Thanks for talking to us as ever. A man who is pretty synonymous with the Munster Hurting final. Murph? Yeah, well, I mean, I know a lot of people kind of get their backs up about talking about, you know, the folklore of the Munster Hurling Final and how it's, you know, the most unique sporting event in Irish culture, you know, even though it happens every year. But uh, the key thing, I, I, in fairness, there were there was a sort of golden period of the Munster Final and that was Nicky English's team in the late 80s up against uh, the Cork team of Tomás Mulcahy and Jimmy Barry Murphy and that. And they did have ridiculous crowds and amazing games that went to replays and extra time and all the rest. And I think kind of since then, they've, the Munster final has nearly been trading on the brilliance of those games. There were a couple of very good ones involving Watford in 2002 and 2003 and 2004. But kind of other than that, there have been as many kind of stinkers as not. But uh, hopefully this week, Cork and, Cla- Cork and Limerick, and it looks like it's going to be a full house in Limerick, which will actually be a pretty amazing event. Yeah, this was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Best of allies, and now you've got to say best of enemies as well. Over the shoulder, he looks and falls home, still on the nose. Dan Martin waiting to pounce. The crowd know that this is the moment for them. Four hours, 42 minutes and more in the saddle, and they're weaving all over the side. This is not fatigue, this is strategy. Nobody wants to take it on too early, and Dan Martin goes for it now. And Fulsang picks his teeth and bends it onto his wheel. Oh, and here they come. Here's your final turn. 150 metres, has he made it absolutely perfectly? He opens up and tries to drive away, and Fulsang tries to get back at him. Dan Martin holds on. Is it going to be another glory day for Ireland? Absolutely! What a phenomenal performance. That was Sunday, and that was absolutely incredible. I managed to catch up with Dan Martin last night. Myself and Ken had a good chat with him. He was on his rest day at that stage, so I put it in first of all that the fact that he had a little bit of rest maybe gave, gave him a chance to reflect on his amazing success. Yeah, a little bit of time to uh, to, 
to talk to you guys as well. I mean, if it was a, if it was a normal stage, we wouldn't have this time. But yeah, for sure, it's it was a it was a big day for me and the team yesterday. I mean, we uh, from the very sharp the sponsors Garmin and Sharp and and the team directors basically said to us that we the results weren't important and that we just wanted to make a mark on the race and and make the race entertaining and and cause chaos and that was what we said in the press conference and I think maybe the whole race was waiting for that to happen and yesterday we proved good to our word and from the very beginning we uh we were uh aggressive and I, I myself was in breakaways on the first and second climbs and attacking and making Sky really work for their yellow jersey and in the end we we managed to carry the job all the way through to the finish and uh and yeah, and get a get the stage victory, which is yeah, coming over the finish line and being hit by that tidal wave of media was just it, it was just mind blowing. The grandeur of the occasion just didn't it didn't hit home until I until I actually finished the race. I think, and until even now, like the number of messages I've got from people from home and media and on Twitter, and it's just the support's been unbelievable. And yeah, it's it's just amazing. Were you just in a little bit of shock for a couple of minutes afterwards? I just I think. You can see it in the way I raced in the final. I was just very calm, and that was mainly because I, I, I didn't, I didn't see it as such a big, a big deal. You know, <laughs> it was more a case of, yeah, going through the motions like a normal bike race, and it was just winning a race. And then exactly when I crossed the line, it was like, okay, now it's just, it's actually the state of the Tour de France that I won. And it, it, it's it's kind of how I've always looked at cycling. It's it's still only and win or lose, it's only a bike race, and it's not life or death. And it's a it's a case of I just do my best, and if I come away victorious, it's uh, it's fantastic. Well, I suppose this may be a hypothetical question then, but if you were had lost out in that final sprint and had come second, would you be as satisfied with your performance sitting here today as you actually have been having won the race? Obviously, I would have been disappointed, but it's uh, to come so close to a to a tour stage victory would have been yeah, it would have been hard to take. But again, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it because it's only a bike race, and it's it's a case of. Yeah, I mean, as long as I did my best, I'm, I'm sure if I hadn't lost, I would have been, I would have had errors that I would have made. But the way I rode it, and maybe I stand to my experience now that uh, I think I rode the perfect final, and that's uh, and people are calling it a tactical masterclass, which is, is is quite the compliment. Did you get to speak to your parents shortly after the race? Did that have to wait for a while? No, we had to get straight to the airport. I had obviously had press conference, drug control, and then straight to the airport, and I didn't get to the hotel until nearly 10.30 and I didn't have any phone battery left so it was uh, I didn't get to speak to, to speak to them until very late last night nearly midnight but uh, but yeah for sure I mean they're uh, they, I don't think I definitely I can definitely say they're not getting used to the to the winning feeling yet they still get as nervous as ever when I'm coming into the final but and I think when you're watching from home it's the uh, the size of the occasion really does uh, really does hit home and it's it's the Tour de France, you know. It's like it's the biggest race of the year, and to win a stage is huge. Yeah, and your father was a pro cyclist himself. He would know about the sacrifices that you've made, what you've had to do. It's well documented, Dan, that he brought you there to a similar area of France for the race in 1999 for the Tour de France. You were a young boy at that stage. Uh, did, did that actually genuinely make it extra special? Were you thinking about that during or after the stage itself? Yeah, obviously it was me that put it on Twitter in the morning, and it was actually a very similar stage in '99 with with four, three of the same climbs, and we stood on the, the second last climb of the day. We stood there, and I, I could remember exactly the spot where we stood, and 
yeah, it was uh, it was quite the moment passing that. But again, I was just focused on my job and focused on what I was doing, and uh, and that was staying in contention in the yellow jersey group. And uh, in the end, uh, it was uh, it's, it's definitely an area that's, that's been good to me. I mean, I won route to stood there, and uh, in the same area on on many of the same climbs in 2008, which is a French stage race, and uh, and yeah, it's. It's an, it's an area that's very close to my heart, especially out of all the fond memories I've got from spending holidays there as a kid. What do you remember of 99, your first Tour de France watching? I just remember the anticipation of seeing the helicopters come over the hill of the, because you could see the descent of the Periosword, which is the third climb of the day, and uh, from, from where we were standing. And so you could see the helicopters coming over the brow of the hill, and then you could just, yeah, feel the, you could almost watch them come down the downhill and then through the valley road and then back up the, uh, the climb where we were standing on Valorand Desert which is the fourth time of the day yesterday. And it was, yeah, that, that, that moment of just waiting to see, here they come, you know, it's, and that's what all the people on the side of the road experienced yesterday. And I think that's a huge, that, that, that's the draw of the Tour de France. I mean, it's hard to explain until people have actually experienced it, but it's, uh, it's such an incredible atmosphere on the side of the road that it's, uh, it's, it, it, people get hooked. Dan, I wanted to ask you a bit about, uh, I mean, yourself and Jakob Fugelsang were, were leading uh, the race for a long time. And it's this weird situation that you get in cycling that you don't really tend to see in a lot of other sports where you have to work together and work together and work together right up until the end when suddenly you turn on each other and become enemies and one, only one of you can ultimately win. It's, it's a really weird situation to sort of go from being allies to, to opponents in the blink of an eye like that. I think it's that uh, you work together because you both believe that you've got a really good chance of winning, and and it's also the tour, you know. I mean, second is no, it's, it's still a big deal, and to get second, second in the stage of the Tour de France is huge. But to obviously everybody wants to win, and but you haven't got a chance of like Jakob still had a huge chance, a huge opportunity to win a stage with 200 meters to go. But if he, yeah, if he if he didn't work with me, he didn't have any chance of winning. So it's uh, it, it's yeah, it, it all comes down to that. The, the game of chance, I guess, not a game of chance, but like it's a, it's a, it's a tactical battle. From this, like maybe he was, I was pulling harder than him, or he was working harder than me. You don't really know. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it, that's what makes cycling so intriguing to to, to the trained eye. Yeah, well, you don't really know. We don't know, but you you probably know. You know, you're racing with a guy for an hour. You've got an idea. But what kind of things are you looking out for to to give you an idea of? Um, what sort of condition he's in, or how ready he is to, to ultimately stand up to you if you if you decide to attack him at the last? Uh, yeah, it's just I, it's not really looking out for anything. It was more I was in the same position as I said he was. You know, it's just trying to get to the finish, and then then you figure out the last kilometer when you get there. But we weren't really thinking about getting there until we got there, and it was so close behind with the peloton being like right on our tails that we uh, we had to uh, yeah we had to get a move on. And any moment of hesitation, we would have been caught. So. It wasn't a case of thinking tactics until very, the very last minute. You said that, uh, Dan, you had the express purpose of going out and causing chaos. And I know since the race you've said that the early attacks pissed a lot of people off, in your own words. How has the reaction of the rest of the peloton been? Have you got any dirty looks or any crosswords from anybody? Well, we went to rest day, so we don't really have any contact with anybody, you sure. know. But it's, it's still very much... Uh, I think people were very impressed by what our team achieved yesterday and the aggression that we showed and the entertainment factor. And at the end of the day, as cyclists, we're all fans of, the, of cycling. And like, being a part of such a special stage is, uh, is important to everybody. I think it is great for the Tour, though, because it did maybe look after Saturday that, that Sky were, were well in control of this. And then 
on Sunday they're completely ragged and uh, and really what you did maybe helped to, to blow things open a bit. Yeah, that was the objective, you know. I mean, we uh, we saw the sky uh, weakness that could possibly appear in Sky's uh, Sky's armory, and uh, we uh, yeah we used that to our advantage and and used our, our strength and depth in the team to be able to really uh, to, to to weaken them, and then the other teams obviously helped helped with that too. Dan, can I just ask you, lastly, your own aspirations now? I don't know if you're keeping your cards close to your chest. Can we start dreaming of contending for the Tour de France in full? This year or? This year, yeah. Uh, I'm just still going to continue what I've been doing and take it day by day. I mean, it's not a... Yeah, I mean, I'd like it's, it's, it's such a long way to go and anything can happen and... Uh, yeah, at the moment I'm just going to think about tomorrow's stage and then we get tomorrow's stage out of the way and think about the next day. And if I string together another, what is it, I don't know how many days left, 11 days left, 12 days, if I string together another good 12 days, I'm going to be in the front in the, or near, near there or thereabouts in Paris. But, you know, it's, uh, as I say, it's, a lot can happen. And it's, uh, so, yeah, I'm just going to enjoy this victory for now and then we'll see what happens later in the race. Well, Dan, it's been great stuff so far and everybody at home was really rooting for you as well on Sunday and will continue to do so. Congratulations and best of luck for the rest of the tour. Yeah, thank you. Lovely stuff there from Dan Martin. I can't help but notice that there's a huge amount of confidence there. He's not exactly... We, last week, if you remember on the show, we played you a clip of Shay Elliott winning the, being the first Irishman to win a stage 50 years ago and in the aftermath of that, after they eventually managed to get that yellow jersey over his shoulders he was asked have you got a chance of winning the tour overall and he completely ruled that out mm. at that very stage Dan Martin not ruling it out completely so let's hope there's a little bit more to come if you read him in the Irish Times column wow brilliant. and by the way it's, it's diary, a, a, a diary it, every, yeah. every day in the Tour de France I mean it's just one of the many amazing features of the Irish Times sports pages I mean I couldn't I, I actually you know if you ask me now to pick my favourite Irish Times column <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't do it. I mean, Daryl O'Shea on a Wednesday. Could yeah, I do it? okay, yeah. He can early on a Monday. He again, he again says during Sophie's that, choice on that. Look, we're going to work hard for the next few days and see where we're at at that point. So, um, you'd imagine maybe whirring away in the back of his mind there. Well, what he was saying today in the diary is that he thinks that every other team has followed the lead of Garmin Sharp yeah. in in essentially not doping. Policing themselves. This is just to explain a team that he rides for, Garmin Sharp, they were one of the first to actively police themselves and really stake their entire reputation on being anti-doping. And, it's, and his point is the fact that they were able to, to be the team to cause all the chaos on Sunday that other riders couldn't go with them shows that those other guys are clean as well, in his opinion. He feels that it's a lot cleaner now. Well, it's certainly would lead you to suspect that. I mean, if he's if he's clean and he wins, then that sort of gives you... Now, it's... Okay, I don't think there's ever really been... I don't think it's really been the case that clean riders could never win a stage. That's true, yeah. It's more that they couldn't win... A tour. Yeah, no. They couldn't, they couldn't ultimately compete with dope riders over, uh, you know, the 20 days of racing or whatever. So, um, so by... In, in itself, Martin's victory doesn't really prove anything. Um, but it is, I mean, it's, it's certainly, I think, better from the, the tour going to be looking at it thinking, well, this is good, you know, because if, if it had just been Sky again... I was going to say Team Sky are looking at it thinking this is good because the story of Saturday was how relentless and how brilliant they were mm. and people straight away were saying, oh, Sky were too dominant. Uh, they were a little bit like Lance Armstrong's US Postal back in the day and their team boss, Dave Brailsford, addressed this. He was quite indignant in his response about this. And on Sunday, once Sky struggled a bit, yeah. it seemed to me that 
judging by Brailsford's comments, he was somewhat relieved maybe that they didn't go and run. Look, you know, pe- people can't come, at least people can't come and say, well, I see your guys have finished the top nine again. But the story of Sunday was, was an interesting story in its own way for Sky, which was that all the little Sky henchmen all got killed off early. And it was just their number one guy, Chris Froome, alone, behind enemy lines, fighting off attack after attack to survive and stay in touch uh, right at the top of the race. Andy Murray is uh, an interesting character. Not, not fully embraced early on, maybe, by the tennis fans, the Wimbledon fans. Maybe they were still pining after Henman and Rosetsky and those kind of characters at that stage. But after losing and crying last year, he became more loved to the point that he could speak quite unemotionally Mm. in an almost detached manner after winning Wimbledon Sunday yes. and it no unfortunate <laughs> uh, because you know the greatest pure move he ever pulled was crying weeping uncontrollably on centre court last year yeah. uh, after losing that final and you know everyone said oh here's Andy Murray you know he's an emotional guy he wears his heart in his sleeve and then he comes out and li- gives a speech that literally could have been any sportsman after any sporting event you know this year yeah. uh, and I mean how he couldn't have even described his own... Maybe he, that's all he felt. Maybe he just felt relieved to have, you know, beaten a... But when you look at the speech, he said exactly the same sort of stuff as he said last year. The only difference was how he said it, and the, that was because of how he was feeling. So last year he was in hell, and hell is a lot more interesting than heaven, which is, I guess, where he <laughs> must have been on Sunday. I mean, if you look at depictions of hell, you've got Dante, James Joyce, Hieronymus Bosch, Heaven, you've got Monty Python. There's, there is nobody. Warren Beatty and that. Nobody has even tried to explain what that's like. So Murray is not an actor. He's a sort of, you know, he's a tennis player who looks a bit like Napoleon Dynamite. He's not a. He's not an actor. When you, you know, when you, when you look at great actors, it's their ability to project this emotion that people go and people go and watch them, so they can vicariously experience that emotion. Andy Murray can't do that. He's a tennis player, not an actor. So he can only really project how he really is feeling. Yeah, and Would you not he, have said, though, that at some stage he could have thrown the crowd a bone? Because all they wanted to do was cheer, you know, cheer But they him. did anyway. If you listen to them, they're laughing like idiots at everything he says. Even when he's just making statements to be jokes. Is it kind of important that he was really good on the court and won Wimbledon? That's pretty good. Uh, well, that's, it's certainly worth Not the mentioned. greatest speech anyone's ever given after winning, but he was quite good at winning no. the actual tournament. Well, he's, I, I think he's so, a as well, that Wimbledon is, you know, as we said last week, sport, All about sport for people who don't really like sport. So <laughs> the whole idea of it is that, you know, you have a person. Did we say that, that last week? Well, did well I, not, I said it last did week. Did I not yeah. dispute that last week? It must have slipped by me. What sport? Can, what was your theory? But what can it's, you say? Well, I mean, I've, I've seen loads of people write it. It's sport for people who don't really like sport. So, At the moment, you know, it's Royals and Bradley Cooper and Gerard Butler, and that's a Cliff Richard. You no, know, they're the ones so. who get the tickets to the final. I think a lot of people enjoy watching it and can't quite afford to make it. Oh yeah, well, day. I mean, there's, there are plenty of people who like the sport, but then there are loads of other people who just like Wimbledon and you know green grass. But and so the, the, cream the and pathos of losing is an emotion that we can all. Re, uh, relate to none of us can really relate to how it feels to actually win Wimbledon I mean how Murray was feeling maybe if he really showed how he was feeling at that point people would have thought what is Murray doing you know he's he seems to be rubbing everyone's noses in it you know he's he's actually we've created a monster with this <laughs> with this victory this is awful so he's trying to maybe keep a lid in it and he's just just saying his, his cliches or whatever you know I don't think we can criticise him for that we're joined out by Lawrence Donegan author and journalist Lawrence first time we've chatted to you on the new programme how are you keeping? Uh, great. Uh, yeah. Congratulations on the new show. Thanks a Congratulations to your boy, Andy Murray. Uh, I, I say your boy as a Scot. Uh, this presumably is 
just a really, really big moment in recent Scottish sporting history. Oh, of course. Well, you would have to say probably the greatest Scottish sportsman ever. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty short list. <laughs> uh, Eric Liddle, uh, Dennis Law, Andy Murray. I mean, it is. It's a, it's a really short list. Yeah, probably, the, you know, number one, well, number two in the world, but soon to be number one, presumably. Um, yeah, probably our greatest sportsman ever. The issue with Murray at the moment, I guess, is that everybody wants a piece of him. Uh, he's You see him defined variously as... Well, actually, usually British, really. This is the key. This is how he seems to be presented to the world as a British sports person, sometimes even English when um, a foot-on mistake is made. It's been mentioned once or twice, I know, in the States. But it does seem that everybody kind of wants to have a piece of Andy Murray and get on the bandwagon. Yeah, that was the New York Times yesterday, wasn't it? Uh, Trying for England or something. Uh, yeah, it's it's probably a nuisance for him. I mean, I see him drop to Downing Street getting his tea or his lunch or whatever it is, and you know, it gets cold everywhere. Yeah. Again, there's a bit of a stushy, as we would say in Scotland, to, over this. Um, the Alex Salmon, Scotland's first minister, pulls out the, the Scottish flag behind David Cameron and gives it a wave. You know, um, you know, talk about a storm and a teacup. Um, but you know, yeah, it's just this whole identity thing. You know, when he when he never won at Wimbledon, he was Scottish, and now that he wins, he's British. I mean, this is the kind of argument. Uh, I, I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but I'm. You know, from what you know, I don't respect. I'm not especially close to the Murray camp, but I have been around it you know, over the years, and I, I think they're just absolutely bored with this whole thing. You know, he's a tennis player. He's a proud Scot. I mean, he's not a politician. He doesn't want to get involved in this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's kind of complicated as well because we have this vote in Scotland. You know, the referendum over independence is in Scotland next year, so he's kind of been pulled one way or the other. You know, for what it's worth, he he actually lives in London and uh, and will not be entitled to vote in the Scottish uh, independence referendum next year. So that's kind of interesting in his own little way. But as I say, I, I, from his point of view, I would I would suspect that he he would rather have none of this. Uh, he got into a bit of a problem maybe five or six years ago when he said, "Oh, I think England were playing Colombia in the World Cup or something, or Ecuador," and he and he, and he sort of said to somebody, "Oh, come on, Colombia." You know, which is just a kind of natural reaction of any Scottish football fan. You know, most Scottish football fans, you know, would rather see, you know, anybody beat England than England win. I mean, but that's a, just a kind of nonsensical, terracing attitude. I mean, it doesn't particularly mean anything. So he got into trouble over that. And as I say, I think that scared him off the whole identity thing. And I think he would just rather have none of it. He does seem, he's kind of a, an introverted kind of guy and he plays an individual sport and it, it's just so weird, I imagine, for him to have not only, you know, the likes of Alex Salmond and David Cameron sort of scrambling to get on this bandwagon of his success, but also to be cheered on by sort of 15,000 home counties English people at, at Centre Court. In a way, the, the home crowd that's cheering him on are, are people that he probably doesn't have a lot in common with at all, which is an unusual situation for a sportsman. You're absolutely right. You know, you think about it, the sacrifice required uh, to become a, a top tennis player. I mean, the guy has to essentially live like a hermit. Um, he went off to Spain at the age of 15. I mean, it's a very self-contained sport. I mean, you know, it's a very selfish sport. He's a naturally incredibly shy person. Uh, and, you know, if you think of it, look at his image now, his public image now is, is, is you know, A+. Plus. But five or six years ago, or three or four years ago, he was seen as a sullen, grumpy, 
you know, not especially cooperative or likable, you know, young man. Um, and, and that was reflects in part his his, um, his his personality. He's just an incredibly shy person. Uh, you know, just wants to play tennis. That's all he's ever done. Just wants to, you know, be the best. You know, he has a small coterie of friends. And and that's all he really wants to be, you know. That's all the only kind of people he really wants to be around. But here you are. It must be killing him. I was just thinking today, you know, he's been shunted here, there, and everywhere. I mean, he must be thinking, oh, I wish I hadn't won this damn thing. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's you know, it's a, you know, it's a kind of he just doesn't like the attention. But well, this is you know, you've, you've gone and done it now, Sonny. You're just going to have to live with it. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you're saying, Lawrence, about the, the sort of change in that public image. Now, I'm sure the success yeah. is 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 a huge part of that because people just like to, you know, be associated with winners and so on. And it always is good yeah. to improve your image. But do you think it is something that he has consciously worked on over the last? And part of it, maybe he's he he was, you know, he's still only 26 now, so he's a young kind of a shy kid. Uh, maybe naturally, you're going to become a little bit more comfortable in the public arena. But is it something? In your view, that Murray has consciously, maybe with uh, some some of the people around him, worked on. I saw he did a documentary just a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it does look as though he's he's decided, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this. I might as well make the best job of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, two things. Well, well, the first is the more you do something, the better you get at it. So it's just a simple, you know, practice. He's uh, done lots and lots of uh, dealing with the media. He's just kind of got used to. It. But the other thing, and this is, I hate to say this, but. Um, when he, was, he changed management companies, you know, three, four years ago, he went to Simon Fuller in 19, um, 19 Entertainment, you know, the guy that did Beckham, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, I mean, it was almost overnight, you know, the, the dealings with the press went from pretty awful to very good. Uh, he was obviously taken, sat, sat down by Fuller, and these people said, right, this is, this is really easy, Andy. It does require a lot of effort from you. Just be nice to the press, be accommodating. I mean, I'm... You know, I've covered, you know, a few U.S. Open tennis uh, events. And, and Murray's, I mean, he's so cooperative. He, he gives the press boys what they want. You know, it doesn't take much of his time, but he does it. He does it in, in, in good order with a smile on his face. He's pretty friendly with some of the press boys these days, where years ago he was friendly with one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it was just, it essentially was overnight. You know, he was told, this is, this is how it's done. It's not hard. And Fuller's crowd are pretty professional. They've been through the mill over the years. And and now you have this transformed Andy Murray, you know, uh, Britain's most loved sportsman. Uh, I mean, I was listening to Radio Scotland's uh, last night, and and Murray's up there at eight thirty in the morning. That's pretty good, you know. You're doing your local radio stations, you know, the morning after the night before after an hour's sleep. So I mean, I mean, he's still being, he's still listening to the advice from Simon Fuller clearly. Yeah, I mean, it seems to go completely crazy in Scotland. That, well, completely yeah. quiet streets. Everybody watching this, but you were saying, Lawrence, earlier that um, you know Murray might go straight to the top of the great Scottish sportsman. Maybe yeah. Scots are quite self-deprecating in a way about their yeah. their sports, and you're kind of making fun of it. But when you look at, for instance, what happened in the Olympics, the Scots made a huge contribution to the to the. Right. The Great British, the Great Britain performance in the Olympics. I mean, thirteen yeah. out of sixty-five medals were Scottish. Seven out of twenty-nine goals, including obviously Murray, was Scottish, which is yeah. way better than average. Uh, and yet, yeah. no glory, no glory for Scotland. It all goes to Britain, which, in the minds of everybody around the world who isn't actually in Scotland or or Britain itself, means England. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, but you're asking the wrong man here. I, you know, I, I, these, when it comes to sport, these issues of identity are, you know, I mean, I just think it's a distraction. 
Uh, I get your point, and there's a lot of people who do get your point in Scotland. Uh, and this whole the whole joke about Murray being you know, Scottish when he loses and British when he wins. I mean, some people that genu- genuinely annoy some Scottish people, and you know that, that that's their right. Um, but you'll find that the, the athletes themselves. The one, I mean, the, the interesting one last year was the, was Chris Hoy at the Olympics. You know, the great. I'm not, I mean, I left him out of the list of great Scottish sportsmen. I shouldn't have done. I mean, a great sportsman and a great lad actually. And, and people were were mad on Chris Hoy's behalf. Scott, so there were some Scottish people who were mad on Chris Hoy's behalf, saying, you know, here we go again. He's now been co-opted as British. And and I think you know Alex Salmond, I mean, the Scotland's first minister again. I mean, some people in the kind of nationalist wing of Scottish politics, you know, tried to co-opt Chris Hoy, you know, and and tried to get him to join in their, you know, annoyance at what was going on. And, and Hoy was having none of it. Again, like Murray, I suspect, I mean, he was just, you know, he was just interested in, in his athletic achievement and the fact that he was happy enough that it was that it was, that it was recognised. Uh, he wasn't particularly bothered or interested in this whole issue of of, of identity. And you but may, again, I do accept. Yeah, you mentioned Alex Salmon there, who felt it important enough to unfurl the Scottish flag at the Royal Box at Wimbledon on Sunday. So clearly there there are people, there are politicians who are making a point here. I mean, mean, absolutely. And and, and not just politicians. I mean, I made the mistake of tweeting out something yesterday saying what a crap Alex Salmon was for, you know, an attention-seeking thing. You know, Murray wins wins Wimbledon some, you know, politician tries to grab a bit of the limelight. And I made the mistake of putting out on Twitter, and I got absolutely annihilated. <laughs> My timeline just almost blew up. I mean, there is a certain, you know, certain, and, and entirely the legitimate, uh, you know, people who get annoyed about this thing, that, uh, you know, that Scotland gets overlooked. And, uh, you know, again, it's, you know, you can, you can take one side or the other, but generally you, you find that the athletes are, you know, just don't want to get involved, you know, they're just not in cases, they'd rather just, you know, stick to the sport. Absolutely, listen, we'll leave it there, Lawrence Donovan, great to talk to you again, thanks a million. No bother, all the best. I think Andy Murray's Scottishness shone through enough, it certainly seems that Lawrence there is happy with the weekend's work. Mm. It is a fair point though, that the whole Great Britain, the, the, the being British kind of exists in a sporting context Outside of certain corners of Northern Ireland and Ibrox Park, Britishness is now something that only ever seems to crop up in in the context of sport, whether it be Olympics, whether it be Andy Murray. British and Irish Lions with a couple uh, of Scots in there. British and, and Irish Lions. Yeah. Um, and it's not something we really tend to see. I do wonder, though, what the status of Andy Murray is going to be next year if Scotland votes for independence, which could happen. It kind of looks as though it probably won't happen at the moment, but there's no way, there's no way to tell what way that referendum is going to go. In which case, he would still technically be British, as in he would be from the island known as Great Britain, but he would no longer belong to the polity that Fred Perry came from, uh, and therefore... 78 years, it goes on. <laughs> well, that's that's one possible conclusion. I mean, is there any point in talking about him being British as in from the same island? Is that not a bit vague or a bit broad, you know, like saying someone is European or, or like describing someone as an earthling? It doesn't really get to what that crowd at Wimbledon was so excited about. Moving on to one of the big 
events of next weekend. It's a Leinster football final. It's Dublin against Meath. We've got a man in studio with us who's featured in plenty of these games. Anthony Moyles, are you looking forward to this weekend as a supporter? Yeah, yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, you'd rather be out there, but those days are well gone. Um, it's 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 going to be fantastic. I think obviously it's it'll still be it'll be a warm day in Crow Park, um, and no one gives me the chance. Probably you'd look on form, you'd say rightly, um, but Dublin are definitely the form team, so it's going to be Mead will go in there with just you know no holes barred and just give it a crack. What do you? Rem- what's the best game of the Dublin Mead rivalry from your perspective? Is it the day of the five goals in twenty ten? Yeah, that'll be the one where you remember and kind of go, yes, that was our, our best victory. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, we probably, we had some great battles. I'll always remember the drawn game, I think, in maybe... In 07? 07, yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was a great game. I was captain that year and it was just a fantastic game. It was brilliant the way we came back. Keane Ward came on and he kicked a number of 50s and he kicked the sideline ball. And actually, we probably should have won the game. And it was a real disappointment that we didn't. You know, it was our kind of our opportunity to take Dublin that day. Um, but yeah, 2010 was 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 uh, was a standout game. And it's funny, you know, a lot of people go back in that game and kind of say, oh, the Dublin defence was left wide open, you know, and there was a lot of long balls and kind of the full back line was exposed. But actually, if you look at it, like Stephen Bray's goal was a goal that was kind of taken from underneath the kind of Cusick. He ran out of defence. Um, they got another goal. We got another goal, should I say, where kind of Graham Riley ran through the centre, the middle of the field. And uh, I think it was only kind of the last goal, which was a kind of a long ball in. So looking back on it, it was funny. I actually watched back that game, strangely enough, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, There is no judgment here, Anthony, <laughs> <Yeah>. don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to get an idea of what actually worked. But I was just thinking to myself that, that you know, the, the Dublin setup, the Dublin team hasn't even changed that much. You know, full back line wise, um, similar type of personnel, you know, than, than that was there that day. Uh, Rory O'Carroll was obviously full back. Fitzsimons was corner back. And you could probably say that Cooper's a similar type of player, you know. I think Jared Brennan was six. Um, actually, it's funny you raise that point because this is maybe a broader question, but. I do remember that there was a lot of praise subsequently for Pat Gilroy after this Dublin team went on and won in All-Ireland a year later that he didn't just discard any of those players. He saw these... Rory O'Carroll had a tough day that day. He's had very few tough days since. A really good full-back. And the other lads around were actually around then to go and win in All-Ireland. Is there some, maybe a lesson there that just because of one bad result against a decent team, there's no need for a manager to... Absolutely, yeah. Like I mean, that game was right in the balance until I remember Paul Flynn. I think we were two or three points ahead, um, and Paul Flynn came through and rattled one off the uh, hit the hit the post and came back out. Now, if that goal had gone in, I think Dublin actually would have went a point up with maybe fifteen minutes to go. And people forget that literally from the ball that came out from defence then, we ended up getting a goal and all of a sudden it was five up, we got a point six up and then all of a sudden like the wheels just come off. You know, And you've seen that recently, like say with the Kildare game. Um, and all of a sudden, when you're playing that kind of, I suppose, you know, it, it, it's a kind of a game of, okay, well you come at us, we'll come at you type thing. You know, uh, this is what happens. You know, when you're playing a type of a game like say the down play or, you know, even some, some of the more northern teams where it's more of a possession game, 
teams will kind of get back into it because you get much more touches on the ball and you retain the ball. But when you're playing more of a kind of a, a cameo or not a cameo, but a, 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 a let's just go at it type of situation, which Kildare played against Dublin, it either works for you or doesn't work for you. Um, and Gilroy did. He, you know, he he maintained that core group of players. And like I mean, look, they've they've ended up going and and winning all Ireland's and and Galvin or Gavin, I suppose, has just kind of maintained, I suppose, the the centerpiece, but just added a few little things around it. The cliche is Meath don't fear Dublin. Will this current Meath team coming from Division Three fear this Dublin team who just annihilated Kildare last day? No, that's, I mean that's the thing. It's just uh, people will probably you know, and they've 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 I'm sure they've slagged me and different people in the past where they've kind of said you know it's 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 a confidence thing. It's not a, it's not an arrogance thing. It's just a thing of you go into Crow Park, Meath teams think they'll win. You know whether <laughs> as I say they're rightly or or, or be- definitely wrongly. It's just a thing of okay, we're going in against this team, and when it comes to Dublin Mead, it's literally is it 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 is fifty fifty. You know. See, well, I'm coming at this from a quite a scared position, given that a couple of months ago everyone was saying, well, you know, Mayo are a great team, Galway aren't a very good team, but it's Galway Mayo, you know. Galway, Galway don't fear Mayo. Galway don't fear Mayo, you know. So I, I, yeah, <laughs> very, very much so. But I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned that the that the top teams that we've spent this summer talking about, the big teams, that you have to bring more to the table than just. You know the history of you know we don't fear you. We're not going to pay you any respect. The idea that I've seen over the summertime has been that the big teams are tuned in completely, and that you know the what you're depending on from a goaler perspective or a me's perspective that they'd be off their game or that they'd be you know cocky or too cocky. Uh, that that's not happening this summer. I think to a point, Murphy, you're right. Um, but if you look back in that Galway Mayo game, like I mean, I I, I watched it back. Galway players just didn't try. You know, so that you can go in and say we don't fear Mayo, but you have to go in with an appreciation of who Mayo are, mm. and you have to say, okay, I know this is going to be like. I remember going into some Dublin games. I remember actually being in Dublin games, and my head was 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 sore. It was thumping from the concentration levels. Like I remember playing at six, Mark and Shane Ryan, and and Cluxton would kick kickouts to Shane Ryan quite often. So you were watching where the space was. Like you were switched on. Like it wasn't just any of those moments where the ball go wide and you go, okay, let's get, take a breath here. It literally was ball goes wide. Okay, where am I? Where's the space around me? Because what would invariably happen was someone like Eamon Fallon or someone would cross you, bump you, and next thing Shane Ryan is onto a kick out and you're on the back foot. So the concentration levels are enormous. What I'm saying about the Mead mentality is, is that of course there's a respect there and an appreciation of who Dublin are. And they'll watch videos and they'll analyse Dublin and they'll say, look, this is where all of their main strengths are. But you can't go into a game, first of all, you can't go into a game fearing the opposition because if you go in fearing the opposition, you're, you're, you're nearly already lying on the floor. You have to go in with an appreciation of who they are, but also an appreciation of, hold on a second, we can actually do things to hurt them. And you have to try and pick out their weaknesses. And Dublin have weaknesses. The same as any team has a weakness. You know, Jim Gavin knows that they've weaknesses. He won't obviously talk about them publicly, certainly, but he will know that there's certain points of those players who look excellent when Kildare have laid down and gone, thank you, you can just roll over us, but who maybe when it comes to a point or two game or maybe they're behind, then you'll really find out where their metal is. Do we know what those weaknesses are yet? Or do we... Are you- as you say, do we have to actually wait for them to put to the pin of their collar before we know what the issues are going to be? I think there's a few weaknesses that, that I could see. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I mean, I think I think the, the situation with... Like, Dublin... What Kildare did, and did it completely wrong was 
goalkeeper was kicking nice little popped kickouts towards his his midfield and his half back line coming onto the ball. So they were just landing really at his own half back line level. Now that was all fine, well and good if if, if actually the Clareman managed to catch it. If he didn't, which Normally he wasn't. It was being broken. Mm. It was being broken nearly right in with about 30, 40 metres out from the Kildare goal, which meant all one Dublin player had to do was get on it and it was a score. What I would say if I was Paddy O'Rourke or, or the me team, I'd be saying put that ball as long as you can down the field. Paddy O'Rourke is an unbelievably long kick out and he should be landing it beyond midfield. So if the ball breaks, it'll take at least two passes to get into a Dublin forward line, which actually allows you to set up things. I would scavenge for the ball around the midfield. Like, I mean, literally make it a midfield battle of, okay, we're going to try and win as much possession as we can and let's see what we can do with it after that. Like, if you look at the stats against Kaler, Kaler gave the midfield away, allowed Dublin take it, and by trying to play these cute kickouts, you know, left and right, they didn't work at all. Yeah. So I would just say, put it on the middle, let's go old school around there. And then obviously you have to mark up for Dublin's kickouts and Cluxons, but try and make him forced to also kick long. Now, that's. That's easier said than done. But I think that's one place where you can, can do it. And I think if you win more possession than, than, than Dublin do, well, then it's going to be, as I say, a, a, a kind of a shootout thing. There seems to be a fair bit of optimism about the Mead setup this year. Well, there's optimism, I suppose, in the sense of they're, they're building a team. Um, they are, I would say, at least two to three years off Dublin, of, 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 of where Dublin are with regard to their progress. Um, but... It's it's a sense of you know I really hope I really hope that the, that the players kind of go in with with confidence in, and and say right we're going to just give it absolutely everything like I mean I was saying to Murph there a couple of weeks back after the Kildare game I watched back some of the some of the the, the main things in the Kildare game and even the first goal even the second goal that Dublin got Kildare players could have done more now that's not going to come from your own kind of ability that just comes from your actual levels of, of determination can you actually get back like one, Bernard Brogan's goal I can't remember the player but he came in he kind of gave it one hand you know softly kind of block like he kind of turned away and had one arm down instead of literally diving with both hands on Bernard Brogan's foot that was at the 35th minute right before the, the half time and it, Dublin ended up I think going in three or four points up after that goal a block at that stage you can imagine what it would have done to the Kildare crowd. You would imagine what it would have done to the Kildare dressing room. McGee even spoke about that. The, that second goal ripped the heart out of them. All these little things, and it's amazing. You won't probably notice it in a match, but that determination to get back or that determination to kind of run back and, and, and guard against goals, which I think Dublin live off, is, is, is going to be a massive telling. Meade will have that determination as Galway didn't. Well, I I would hope so. If they don't, they'll be bet out the gate. They'll be bet by fifteen points. Sure. You know, like I mean, they have to bring that. They have to literally go, lads. We're going to run to the standstill. Like Graham Riley has to say, not only am I going to go forward and kick five points, but I'm going to absolutely a hundred percent make sure that my man isn't going to go back the other way. If I only last forty minutes and I literally have to be wheeled off the the field, well then, well and good. You know, because you, you're going to have to use your five substitutes on uh, on Sunday. And like I mean, that is what me are going to have to do. They're going to have to try and keep the tempo high. Think me will do it? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> he toyed with it though. He really wanted well, to. Well, say well this it is all another point. We're actually going to have to cut all of the previous ten minutes out of the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do I have given I've given our producer Mark Horgan. I should tell everyone I've given him eight points. I think Dublin will beat Mead, Mead man, of course. by eight points or more. No, I think they'll definitely get within the spread. 
Um, do I think they'll do it? I think it's probably a step too early for them uh, in in their development. But I think they'll give Dublin a big scare um, if they bring that determination. And I'm, it's an old cliche. Like I mean, you can bang the table as much as a manager and say, "Yeah, lads, let's go out here and be determined." But it's all about mentality when you actually go out there. Um, and and mentality can be ruined by a number of things. Fear is one. You know, so the Galway players maybe they said, "Oh, we don't fear Mayo," but maybe they actually did really fear Mayo. And when the game starts, they kind of realize realize, well, we're way off the pace here, you know, and then fellas actually go within themselves. Me can't do that. Literally, me players have to say, like, kick out Gillespie. If there's a ball in the air, I'm going to run 40 yards to get that ball. I'm going to, I don't care who I clean. If I clean my own man out of it, I literally have to go get it. And that is the only way. You have to throw caution to the wind to a certain degree uh, to win the game. But... You know, I still think Dublin will probably have a little bit more. They've probably a stronger bench. Um, even though Mead have a very, very strong bench with Joe and different lads like that, Brian Farrell, who can change things up. But uh, I think it's going to be a great game. And I really, really hope Mead go out with that determination um, and, and, and keep it close for those first kind of 40, 50 minutes. Because then, as I say, we'll see really how, how much Dublin have. Anthony, great stuff as always. Thanks. The hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a various blasts of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. I thought that he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Second captains at the Irish Times. Available Tuesdays on iTunes and irishtimes.com. Confidence not going to be an issue for Mead by the sounds of Has it ever Anthony been? there going to Croke Park expecting to win. He mentioned there Graham Riley needs to not only kick four or five points a game, but also work hard in tracking back. So judging by a couple of interviews I've read with Graham Riley recently, that's not going to be an issue. He's not He's a man phased by expectation. He says himself, and in fairness to him, he scored a lot of goals from midfield last year, or a lot of points, I should say, and he's scoring a lot more as a forward this year. And he says himself, listen, I expect to score four or five points a game. That's, he's, that's yeah. what I do. I'm a mead man. <laughs> he's not the sort of guy that will hold it against Anthony for saying that, <laughs> because he said it, as you said, as you said there uh, himself in the Sunday Times, where he expects to score five points from play a game. Uh, and three points from play is pretty exceptional. So, the, And, I mean, the guy was playing midfield last year. He ended up as the top scorer in the championship from play, mm. and Meads were beaten in the Leinster final. I mean, they didn't even get to the last eight, which is it's a pretty extraordinary uh, achievement by him. Uh, and the pressure is on him this week, but he is actually a, a pretty gifted footballer. So he will be one of the guys that Meads will be looking to, definitely. How many beatings do they have to take again before... They stop being confident about beating Dublin Croke Park. It's a big question. Well, it's it's, it's like that. Um, you know, they remind me of the only the only characters I can think of that really sum up the personality of me. They're idiot dogs in cartoons. <laughs> oh, Odie uh, in Garfield. Remember him? A lot of things. Yeah, 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 Santa's right. little helper. The way the frisbee bounces off his head. Yeah. Not a lot going on between the but behind the eyes <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. So I'm sure that their game, you know, they'll they'll keep coming back. And you know, we've got one right here in the game. studio. Yeah. Well, listen, you, I'm going to have to pull Mark Horgan off you now in a minute. But well, there is also the the guy, the soldier in uh, Monty Python. You know, the tis but a flesh wound guy. The Black Knight, is it? Yeah, the Black Knight. I mean, well, there's certainly similarities there. I think. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Second Captains at the Irish Times. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. Any emails you want to send in to us, 
editor at secondcaptains.com. Lads, thanks very much. Thank you, Owen. Thank thanks, you, Ken. Owen. Thank now, you, I Kira. must say, Ken referring to the new Wimbledon champion as Napoleon Dynamite earlier was pretty disrespectful, we thought, so let's play out in honour of Andy Murray. I don't know whether you realise what you've done, but boy, how does it feel to hold that trophy now? We kept trying to attack my cousins. What the heck would you do in a situation like that? How much do you remember of that last point? I told you, I spent it with my uncle in Alaska, hunting wolverines. You played such a great match, but how good were the fans here and on Henman Hill and in Dunblane and at home? You know, there's like a buttload of games at this school. This one game kept wanting me to join because I'm pretty good with the bow staff. Ladies and gentlemen, the Wimbledon champion for 2013, Britain's Andy Murray. Hey. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.